last week, <clears throat> and I managed to get through one chapter. So let's pick it up again uh, by a matter of review. This has several themes, of course, in any of the books of God's Word, but primarily here we're dealing with the overall uh, emotion of hope and also of humility. <clears throat> so he he talks about that and how we're called by the precious blood of the Lamb and that our hope is in Him. Uh, and he does tell us then at the end of chapter 1, I'll review this briefly before we get to 2, because there's a, a, a connection between the end of 1 and 2. It says in verse 23, "...being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God." So, he talks about our heritage here, and how we are the seed of God. Not the seed of Abraham, uh, not the seed of... Uh, any other man, but we are the seed of God, uh, which lives and abides forever. So that seed, when planted, uh, grows and becomes, as the Bible uses the imagery many times, a tree. Uh, humans are referred to as trees in many places in the Bible. So a seed grows into a tree. Christ used the mustard seed, smallest of seeds, and yet it grows into a mighty tree, even as we begin very small uh, as a seed or as begotten and develop over a period of time. Then he says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. So he uses the analogy of grass as well for men. And he's quoting here from Isaiah 40. I think I'll flip back there for a moment. Because Peter, in his own mind, thought he was writing to the end-time church here. But there's a message here beginning in Isaiah 40, uh, after the story of Hezekiah, which I think was a type of, Herbert, or Herbert Armstrong was a type of Hezekiah. But there's a new work beginning in chapter 40, where he says to comfort his people, uh, and that their warfare is accomplished, their iniquity is pardoned, which is just ahead of us in prophecy and how a voice would cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the eternal, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And of course that is uh, tied together with John the Baptist coming before Christ. Uh, but it is also an end time prophecy for today. Every valley will be exalted and every mountain and hill be made low. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So John the Baptist only partially fulfilled this. The cricket hasn't been made straight yet. <laughs> the rough places uh, aren't made flat or plain and easy to walk on. We're still in a world that is full of violence and hatred and war and animosity, and uh, it hasn't been tamed as yet. And he goes on with that thought in verse 5, The glory of the eternal shall be revealed. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, Christ was revealed uh, right after John the Baptist was toward the end of his ministry, but he did not come in glory. He came as a human being, walking as a human being. So even though that was partially fulfilled in the days of John the Baptist, its greater fulfillment is here at the end when the message comes again and ends with the glory of the eternal being revealed. 
and all flesh shall see it together. Now, that hasn't happened again yet. It didn't happen the first time Christ came. All flesh never saw him. Uh, and we know that the prophecy of his glorious return shows that every eye will see him. So to fulfill this prophecy completely, it has to be for the end time. So what follows here has to also be the end time message. Now, Peter thought he was saying that there in verse 24 of First Peter 1, but there's a much greater fulfillment. And the voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? Preach, say, talk. Well, what do I say? Say, all flesh is grass, and all the godliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Eternal blows on it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So, uh, then he says to proclaim uh, God. Christ is returning. Uh, so the message is, all mankind is going to be wilted like grass just before Christ returns. Through uh, violence in our own land, through warfare, through the tribulation, and then through the seven last plagues. And by then, all mankind will pretty well be withered. So, this isn't something that Peter wrote that doesn't have anything to do with us, I guess is the point I want to make here. So, he says, the flower falls away there in verse 24 of 1 Peter 1, but the word of the eternal endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. And then the connection with chapter 2 is, wherefore, because all flesh will wither, and because God's word endures that being considered, we need to have a certain response. And he goes on to explain what our response should be. He says, laying aside all malice. No malice in us. We, we can't have any malice toward anyone. No hatred, no bitterness, no anger. Uh, those are all somewhat synonymous with malice any evil thought toward, in other words. We can't have that in our hearts and minds. It doesn't matter. Doesn't he, didn't Christ tell us to love our enemies? We are to. And sometimes that is not an easy thing to do for human beings. But that's the attitude Christ tells us we ought to have. Uh, there are a lot of enemies of God right now, but he still loves them. And he said he sent his son to save not the righteous, but to save sinners. So people who are living lives of sin are, in that sense, enemies of God, friends of the devil. But he loves them anyway, and he sent his Son to redeem them, which he will do in their order as it comes to them, in whichever resurrection they're in. So we're to lay aside all malice because of the fact that God is about to rain terror and wither the grass of the earth. And all guile, we're to be straightforward, we're not to be uh, hiding in that sense, let our yes be yes and our no be no, uh, to be straightforward, to be sincere in other words, 
not full of guile or hypocrisy or, or hiding. And hypocrisy, to lay aside hypocrisy. Hypocrisy essentially is believing one thing and doing another. Is what hypocrisy is. Uh, where we say it's, it's okay for me to do this, but it's not okay for you. A double standard, in other words, is what hypocrisy really amounts to. And envying. We can't envy anything that anybody is or has. And all evil speaking. Well, that covers a wide range there. To get rid of all evil speaking. We're not to speak evil of anyone, anytime, anywhere. So then he says, as newborn babes is the analogy here. Does a baby have malice? Does he have guile? Subterfuge? Is he a hypocrite? Does he have any envy? Does he speak evil? No. Uh, we're not to either. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The very basic fundamentals of being like Christ. And it doesn't matter about intricate prophecies and all those things. Yeah, they're interesting and it's nice to know what's coming. And that has its place. Uh, but at the same time, the milk of the word which Christ began to disseminate there in Matthew 5. Uh, peacemakers, humble, meek, gentle, and so on, are the attitudes that we are to be seeking instead of these things that are named above. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit instead of the works of the flesh. If so be, of the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby, a newborn babe nurses and drinks milk, and it causes him to grow. He becomes bigger, and he becomes more acutely aware of his surroundings as he begins to mature. And we are to do the same, to grow. Isn't that what Christ really said in Revelation 2 and 3? That we are to overcome if we are to be part of his kingdom. Well, overcoming is growing. It's moving forward and putting those things behind us that are wrong and thriving on that which is good. So he says, if so, if so be, you have tasted that the eternal is gracious. I hope that we've all tasted that because we came from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of sins and all kinds of idolatry and self-worship and materialism and all the things you can name that we put ahead of God in our society today as human beings. But he began to open our minds and to call us and to teach us the truth. So has he not been gracious with us? He only is called, by comparison to how many people are on earth, a very few. Now he's called many in one respect, and he's out of that he's choosing a few, so on that level, uh, he didn't call many by comparison of percentage of people on earth, but a large number compared to what he's going to choose. But, but percentage-wise, those that he even called is very, very small based on the population of the earth. And the fact that he called you and me out of billions of people 
uh, is pretty astounding. <laughs> that's that's the grace of God that we have tasted. There are very, very few people who know the truth of God today and what the Bible is all about and the plan of salvation and God's purpose for mankind to become God. That's blasphemy to most so-called Christians to say that we're to become God. So very, very few have tasted that God is gracious. And even many, many, many thousands, tens of thousands who have known the truth and tasted that graciousness of God are now departing from it, leaving it behind. Uh, scary business. Anyway, verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. So Christ is referred to here as a stone, but a living stone. He was chosen as a particular stone, and we'll see what kind of stone here in just a moment. But precious to God, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Emmanuel. Now, we're not to be blockheads, uh, dead stones, rocks on the ground. We're, to, we're used here in an analogy as is Christ, as stones. He was a living stone, and he says we're to become living stones as well as a spiritual house. Now, you can take rocks off the ground and make a house. Uh, you can take people who essentially are stone, not worth much, and you can turn it into a spiritual house. Then it becomes a lively stone a stone that has meaning and purpose. Uh, God told them to make altars of stones in the Old Testament in several places. Now, when they crossed the Jordan, was one of those times, they were to select stones, rocks, out of the river Jordan, and put them up on the bank and pile them up as a monument or an altar to God, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what made those stones different than the rest of the stones in the river. The river Jordan's around here somewhere. I'm not exactly sure yet just which one it is, but it's full of rocks. And those rocks were all the same. Just like everybody in the world could be called a rock, a stone, and they're all the same. There's nothing important about them other than they're just there above any other stone, let's say, important. But then when they took those rocks, selected 12 of them out of the riverbed, and piled them up and made an altar and a monument to God, did not those stones have a lot more meaning than the ones that still lay in the riverbed? Yeah, they, they meant something then. They were an altar to the ever-living God. They weren't like the other stones anymore. So we got a bunch of stones here on the earth, men, who have no meaning in particular until they are called spiritually and become lively stones, imparted with the, the life of God. A holy priesthood. That's what we are to become. We're to be kings and priests forevermore, and therefore we are to be a holy priesthood. 
Now, some would interpret that, that all of us are priests, so we shouldn't have any one over us. Well, uh, even among the priests, you had those who were in charge of certain courses, and then you had the high priest over them. So that doesn't wash either. Yes, we are all a holy priesthood, but we are not all in charge. To offer up spiritual sacrifices, that would be our prayers, acceptable to God by Emmanuel. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. So Christ himself is called a stone as well, but he's the chief cornerstone. Let's go back and read that uh, in... Well, let, let me go to Luke 3 first. Luke 3. Here's an, uh, an expression that I never really thought about too much uh, until it became clear in, in looking at these scriptures and what Peter had to say here. Uh, Luke 3, and here, uh, speaking of John the Baptist, verse 3, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, uh, as it is written in the book of Isaiah, as the prophet said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, which we just read, prepare you the way of the eternal, make his paths straight. So John the Baptist was, as I said back in Isaiah 40, a partial fulfillment, but not the final, because Christ coming as a human is not the same as him coming in glory. So he says, every valley will be filled up and the mountains and hills brought low, crooked made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. So John the Baptist was preaching that. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Well, they're going to see the first fruits raised to meet Christ in the air. So they'll see that salvation. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist was like Christ in that sense. Christ called him a generation of vipers too. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. And those Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders of the Jews at that time leaned on Abraham, saying that they were righteous because they were the seed of Abraham. Now notice what John the Baptist said to them. For I say to you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now I had always considered that, is that John the Baptist looked around at rocks laying on the ground and meant that if God wanted to, he could raise up those pieces of granite or limestone or whatever they were, volcanic rock, and turn them into children of Abraham. I, I guess I was naively considering that as, as all he meant. Well, he meant a whole lot more than that. Let's go back to Isaiah 28 and see that he meant something probably quite different than just raising up those rocks. Isaiah 28, verse 16, which Peter quotes, 
Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone. Christ came to this earth. He was tried and found perfect. A precious cornerstone. Not like any other stone that you would begin a building with, but the corner, the foundation stone, the first stone, first of the first fruits, a sure foundation. No other foundation can any man lay than Christ himself. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. So God is going, has raised up a chief cornerstone, Christ himself, so he's called a stone. Now let's go over to Zechariah 10. Zechariah 10. Verse 3, my, my anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. For the Eternal of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Out of him, out of Judah, came forth the corner, the chief cornerstone we just read about in Isaiah. Out of him, the nail, and out of him, the battle bow, out of him, every presser to, oppressor together, and they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight, because the Eternal is with them, and the riders on the horses shall be confounded. Now, this is at the time that the two witnesses are preaching and are given that kind of power. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 talks about the, the rain and the time of the latter rain. And Joel tells us in chapter 2 that at one point he will bless us with the former and latter rain, which is just ahead. So this is speaking of the time just in front of us where Christ is the corner and out of him will come those who will fight against God's enemies. Remember there in Isaiah he talks about how he'll make us a sharp threshing instrument to thresh our enemies. So the same, same, exact same thing in Micah 4. Uh, then Ephesians 2. Paul referred to the same thing. Ephesians 2. I think we all are fairly familiar with this one. But in this context, I want to go back and review it. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Emmanuel himself being the chief cornerstone. So Christ is the corner, the foundation on which the church is laid, and the apostles are part of the foundation as well, but he's the chief cornerstone, the most important, the first laid. If you're going to have a building that's square with the world, faces directly east, you have to get that first stone exactly in the right place. And then the others build off of that, as did the apostles and those who have come after. So, in whom, in him, all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal. So you have Christ the cornerstone, then you have the foundation of the apostles, 
Then you have all of us who are added to that, who are all stones in the temple. Now, we're not just like rocks laying on the ground, are we? We've been selected. We've been hewed. (laughs) We've been worked on. We've been shaped so that we have a place that we fit in the building of the spiritual temple of God. So we're to be a holy temple in whom you also are builded together. So he says, you're you're part of it. You're lively stones for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now consider what John the Baptist said in that light about God could raise up stones to Abraham. We all know that once we are selected and become part of an altar, part of a uh, monument to God, part of the temple, that we have been selected from all the stones men on earth, to be particular stones, specially shaped to fit in our place in the temple. Now, did God raise up stones to replace those Pharisees and Sadducees? Yes, he did. He didn't have to raise up rocks off the ground. That's just an analogy. What he did was call people from all nations and all peoples. Didn't he say, even in the future, that Israel, Assyria, and Egypt shall become a third, a third, and a third, all brothers together serving God. So the Gentiles were invited shortly hereafter to be a part of the church of God, to become lively stones in the temple. So John the Baptist knew, and there are many scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about how the Gentiles will be called. I just quoted one. Egypt represents sin. Uh, the the sinner nations of the world (laughs) will be joined together with Israel, and even those who have destroyed Israel here in the end time and have before, the Assyrians, will be brothers to Israel, a third, a third, and a third. So Christ began to raise up people who were not of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priesthood of that day. He raised up what? fishermen, tax collectors, and so on, to be his apostles. Well, those were like rocks on the ground. They weren't anything important. And then he began to call Gentiles. And you look at the cross-section of the church of people he's called today, and there are people from all around the world, from every different culture, every different race of people, all the different bloodlines, certainly are not the seed of Abraham. And yet they have been raised up to be lively stones in the temple. So this is a whole lot more than just rocks laying on the ground that Christ could breathe life into. This is a reference to human beings, and it's imagery. Human beings who had no importance and yet could be raised up. Were you important? No. None of us were. And yet God chose to select us and raise us up as lively stones to give us an important place. Now, there's a lot of meaning, a lot of hope there, that we're not to be concrete blocks laying on the ground. We're to be lively stones, full of life and energy and the Spirit of God, which empowers us to do things we could not otherwise do, like overcome self and sin, to become holy, and offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Emmanuel, 
Now, unless you've been imparted with the truth, you cannot give a spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God. You can't do it. He hears not the prayers of sinners, right? So until He calls us and gives us His Spirit, we cannot offer a proper sacrifice. When you were a Methodist or a Baptist or a Catholic or an atheist or whatever you were, you could not offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God because you didn't even understand who God was and what His plan was and His purpose. Remember what He went through over and over and over in the Old Testament? The things had to be just right. They had to be proper. They had to be in order in order for them to be a sweet incense to God. And our sins don't make a sweet incense to God. In fact, he's gone along with our sins and had to turn his face from us because of them. So he wants them to become a sweet incense. He wants us to have uh, the attitude of David, who was a man after God's own heart. He sinned, he had problems, and yet on the other hand, when he repented, he repented wholeheartedly. And he was a man who lived his life in a wholehearted way. Now, sometimes his emotions and his attitudes, because of his wholeheartedness, led him to do things he shouldn't do. Uh, he was, I think, a very excellent example of whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. If he was killing Philistines, he did it with all his might. <laughs> if he was praying to God, he did it with all his might. Uh, so, uh, that's the way he wants us to be. He doesn't want us to be willy-nilly uh, or Laodicean, blasé. He wants us to be alive, lively stones. Wherefore also it is, verse 6, contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. We just read that in Isaiah 28, which Peter quotes here. Unto you, therefore, speaking to you and me here, which believe he is precious, and we do, do we not? But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So when Christ was here, uh, they disallowed him. They denigrated him. They hated him. They cast him aside. They tortured him. They killed him. But God made him the head of the corner. Uh, he resurrected him, <coughs> gave him eternal life again, and he then raised up the church in power in Acts 2. Now we also were apart from God. And he has called us through Christ to fit into the temple. So in verse 8 then, he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, not, not liking Christ. You know what? The so-called Christians on this earth don't like Christ. They don't like him at all. They hate him. They say they love him, but they hate him. Now, how is that? Because they hate what he is. They hate his law. They hate his way of life. They have an image of this 
petulant, weak, queer-looking individual, thin, pretty, if you will, hanging on a stake, and that's the Jesus that they worship. But they don't worship the lively stone who taught the the Word of God and the law of God. They hate the message. And if you hate the message, you also hate the messenger. And Christ was a messenger from God here on this earth. So things are not what they seem they are. They stumble at his word, being disobedient. What's disobedience? Disobedience is breaking the law, right? Obedience is keeping it. So the whole Christian world stumbles at the law. They say it's done away with. They're disobedient. They're not willing to keep the law, particularly the fourth commandment and the first. Those are the two they break the most. The first they break the most, idolatry, self-worship, material worship, on and on it goes. But the second one they break the most is the Sabbath. They really hate that one. So they're disobedient, therefore they hate Christ. And they don't know it. And that that symbol, that image that they worship is, I'm sure, more like Satan than it is Christ by far. He's weak. And he's uh, effeminate. Uh, he's, he's not right. <laughs> if anything, he's queer. Or transvestite. Or amorphodite. Or whatever you want to say. He's not... He's not right, not that he has sexuality because the angels don't and didn't, but what I'm saying is he's twisted, he's perverted, he's weird. And disobedience to God causes that. So the whole Christian world are worshipers of Satan and don't even know it, just like he told the Pharisees and Sadducees, they worship their father, the devil. Where also they were appointed... God has allowed the world to be uh, in deception. Satan has deceived the whole world, including the Christian world. And God did that on purpose. He says, I allowed them to be taken and deceived so they would not have to be destroyed. When Satan is bound in the millennium, he'll teach the survivors of the Holocaust the truth. When the great white throne judgments comes, He will teach them the truth so that they can be saved without Satan around to influence them the wrong way. So they were appointed to be this way. On the other hand, we were called out of that, so a whole lot more is expected of us. Too much, whom much is given, much is required. We've been given so very, very much. And God will hold us accountable for what we know. So he goes on to say, verse 9, these were disobedient, They stumbled, but you are a chosen generation. He chose out of this generation. Now, he didn't choose four generations back, three, two. He called this generation. And Christ said, this generation will not perish before he returns to this earth. The generation he called here at the end. Now, he makes it clear in Haggai and Ezra that uh, there will be old men around who can see the latter temple being built. 
So it will be near the end of this present generation that he called into the church. Many, many that I, I grew up knowing are dead now. Many that you had as friends and relatives in the church are dead now. And it's getting to the point there aren't many young people left. He's not calling many young people, just a very, very few. Uh, he quit calling when Herbert Armstrong, essentially, when he died. And uh, now he's choosing out of that a few, a 10%, to come and build the latter temple. So we are a chosen generation. Uh, he didn't choose a generation of 17, 18, 1900s. He chose a generation in the 20th century. He started calling Herbert Armstrong in 1926. So this generation began with him, and he's dead, but there's still some old men around that remember what was built under him, and they'll still be here when the new temple is built. So realize that we are a generation called a special generation, a chosen one, for a particular purpose. A royal priesthood, not just any priesthood, but a royal one under God. Christ is royalty. He's the king. And we are called to work as kings and priests under him, as his bride. So it's a royal priesthood we've been called to. Do we act like royalty, I guess, is the question. You know, when, when people are born into physical royalty on this earth, they start them when they're very young, even as babies, and begin to train them in certain ways, uh, certain reactions, certain comportment and way to live that royal children should live. Uh, they're trained all their lives to someday be a prince or to be a king. And that's what God does with us. He's training us to be kings and priests with him as a royal priesthood forever. Now, these are things that we need to identify with here in verse 9. Because it gives us great motivation to live up to what he tells us we are. We are this. A holy nation. Be you holy even as I am holy, he says. So we are to be like Christ. He was chosen as the first. We are chosen to be like him. He is or was a royal child and is now king of kings and will come back as that. And we are chosen to be kings and priests under him. And we are to be holy as he is holy, without sin, without malice, without the spot of the world, uh, true holiness. And a purchased people, it says peculiar in uh, the King James, which is an old-fashioned term, but it means purchased, redeemed, bought, paid for with a price. We were paid by his blood, by his death, so that our sins could be forgiven and we can live. Otherwise, we have to die for our own sins. So we're a purchased people, purchased by the blood of the Redeemer. That makes us special to God. Now, others will be redeemed later, but we are the first fruits, the ones that are called uh, first to be in the first resurrection, to be part of the 144,000 bride of Christ. That's who was purchased first. 
who were first offered the blood of Christ. A few in the Old Testament, before he died, uh, were offered it uh, ahead of time, but primarily since he came and the early New Testament church began is when he is called most. So that's what we are. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were darkened. We didn't know what we were doing or what religion was all about or even who God was. And then now we understand the purpose of man, the mystery of salvation, and all those things we learned. <laughs> Which in time past, we're not a people, but are now the people of God. Part of the building, part of the temple of God that he is building as, a, as an altar, as a monument, as a living edifice, a living building, a living temple. to bring salvation to the whole world. But now we are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The rest of the world out there has not yet obtained mercy. They're still living in deception. They're still living in sin. We have had the scales removed. We've been taught the truth. And therefore, we obtained mercy. Now, mercy is the blood of Christ for our sins, right? Uh, we don't have to die for our sins. The world out there is going to die for their sins until they're resurrected and forgiven and learn the truth. We are living under the mercy of God as lively stones in His temple. Dearly beloved, verse 11, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So, he says in another place that we are ambassadors uh, for Christ. An ambassador is something that goes from his own nation to represent it in the eyes of other nations. To be its uh, symbol there. To be its representation there. So, he's called us to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God ambassadors for Christ here on this earth. And he says we're to be uh, understood as strangers and pilgrims here. Have you traveled to foreign countries and felt like a stranger there? I've gotten some really strange feelings in various countries around the world because their skin was different, their language was different, their customs were different. Their whole culture was different. And I felt really strange in some of those countries because I wasn't one of them. I was different. And that's what he tells us here. We're to, we're to be like a stranger or a pilgrim traveling through a, a far country with people we don't know. That we're not to be like the people around us. I remember the first time I went to the Bahamas. It was such a strange feeling because suddenly I got off the plane, walked into the terminal, and 90-some percent of everybody there was black, and I had to look hard to find anybody that was pale-faced like me. And it was an utterly strange feeling, and it got in, in a way it got even stranger when one of those black fellows 
spoke to me in a clipped British accent. And then I didn't know where I was. <laughs> Uh, because they have a British accent over there, it was a real strange feeling, and I, I, I was, a, I was a little discombobulated. I, I remember this. Well, that's the way we're to be here on this earth. Uh, what do we have all around us? Fleshly lusts. What do we see on TV and and uh, in the press and everywhere you look on the street? Fleshly lusts everywhere of all kinds, which war against the soul. Now, that can be sexual lust, it can be financial and material lust, it can be lust for power and uh, being thought important. There are just all kinds of things that the human being would desire that are opposite of what God wants us to be, meek and humble and serving Him and peacemakers instead of war makers. So we're to abstain from those which war against the spiritual mind, against our soul. Having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, the peoples around us who are spiritual Gentiles, we're spiritual Israelites, Whether no matter what our racial background, once we're converted, we're spiritual Israelites. Lively stones. So be honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, they think we're weird. They think we're odd. Why would you keep Feast of Tabernacles uh, when you could be keeping Halloween? Why would you keep Easter, I mean, Passover, when you could keep Easter? And on and on and on it goes with the things they do that we don't do. You're really odd if you keep the Sabbath instead of Sunday, for instance. Uh, So we seem odd to them. But he says, do good works. Treat them right. Treat them with honesty and kindness. Uh, You don't be one of them. But be like Christ would be among them. And they may look upon you as evil because of your strange religion. What do you mean you can't have a BLT? Uh, I'm going to have one. No, we don't. We turn it down. But they can't fault the way you live, the way you act, the way you treat them. You may have strange customs and ideas and dietary habits and whatever, but don't let them fault the way you treat people. That by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So there'll come a time when they're going to say, who are these odd people that God is now backing? <laughs> you know, that, that bunch out in Zion and those two that are going around preaching everywhere, they were some of those odd people that wouldn't eat pork and kept Saturday and Feast of Tabernacles instead of Christmas. And now God is with them. God is backing them. That's when the day of visitation begins. They'll glorify, they could glorify God when uh, they see their whole world coming apart. But they will turn and hate those who are part of that visitation. But they can't fault the way those people are living. That's the way it is to be. Verse 13 then, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the eternal sake 
whether it be to the king as supreme. You can go back to Romans 13 uh, and read about that some more. Uh, or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Now, Acts 5 tells us, verse 29 I think it is, to obey God rather than man. So we always put God ahead of man because his, he is totally sovereign. He is the ruler of the universe. So we always obey God ahead of man. If man tells us to work on the Sabbath or die, which they will start doing soon, then we are to die instead of work on the Sabbath. We obey God and don't trample on his Sabbath rather than what man tells us. We are to have the mark of God in our forehead, not the mark of the beast. And Sunday worship is part of that mark. So we are to follow the laws of man best we can and give honor and respect to those who are in uh, positions of authority in the governments around us, remembering that God sets over the nations the basis of men. Daniel 4. So we are to give honor and respect to them for the offices that they hold, always putting God first, but we are not to despise those governments that are around us. Uh, we, you know, we get stopped even for, like, say, speeding on the or running a stop sign or some such thing. We should be courteous and respectful. It might save us a ticket uh, as well. But we're not supposed to give those people a hard time. They're put there to do their job, whether they're doing it right or whether they're doing it wrong. They're put there to do a job, and we're to respect the office that they have. But if they ask us to disobey God, then is when we say, no way. Can, no can do. Sorry. Respectfully, I won't do that. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. They may not like what we believe, they may not like what we do, but don't give them any excuse, in other words. As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Now, he says, his word, his truth, will set us free. Now, we're not free to sin, we're free from sin, the penalty of sin, which is death, through the sacrifice and the blood of Christ and his life. So we have liberty and freedom from the penalty of sin. But don't use that as a cloak for disobedience or maliciousness, but be servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. So we're, we should give honor to all human beings. We shouldn't be in an attitude of negativity and hatred and putting them down uh, for what they are. That is not what we're here to do. We're to honor them. I think sometimes we get out of line even with their, our leaders in our own nation. We diss them or tell jokes about them or put them down. Hey, God put them there. They're the basest of people on earth, and God put them there for his purposes. But we should give honor to those offices in spite of sometimes the sins and the faults. It's not wrong to recognize how they are disobeying God, 
But we don't need to go around in a negative, put-down attitude either. Uh, That doesn't do anybody any good. So honor all people. And love the brotherhood. See, we have a closer relationship with the brotherhood. We honor people around us. We don't diss them, put them down. But we love the brotherhood. (coughs) And fear God. Honor the king, whether it be a human king or certainly Christ as the king of kings. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also the presumptuous, the mean, and the nasty. Now, we, we have to be very, very careful here. Peter's giving some good instruction. There was still slavery in that society when he wrote this. And some people who had been called into the truth were slaves. Now, once they had become, and he's talking to them right here, a royal priesthood, a chosen, purchased people, a royal nation, he called these people who were slaves, physical slaves to other human beings, those things on a spiritual level. And then he comes along and tells those same people who are called of God as lively stones to be subject even to mean masters that they might have physically on this earth. Be be subject to your masters with all fear. Now, since you are physically a slave... You need to teach your owner, or treat your owner, with all respect. Now, that goes against the grain of a human being. We've not experienced physical slavery in this generation. It is It was experienced a few generations back in our own country, yes, and it's still experienced around the world. <coughs> Racial slaves, sex slaves financial slaves, on and on it goes. But Peter's telling us to be obedient to God, even if we are living under people who are unrighteous and are mean and nasty to us, that we are to treat them uh, with respect, to be subject to them, to obey them, to do what they say, as long as it doesn't interfere with God. Now, we in the church get all excited if we see any flaw or anything we think is wrong in a minister of God that God has placed there who is not a physical master over us whatsoever, but we feel quite free to criticize, to put down, to be negative toward, to hate, to ridicule, and on and on it goes. Now, God says don't even do that to a human being who owns you. So where does that leave us on a spiritual level? Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the mean ones. (laughs) Treat them the same way as if you had a good slave master. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. We have to be, we have to put up with quite a bit sometimes, don't we? And maintain a positive, godly, respectful attitude toward those who are over us, 
whether it be an employer. Now, an employer is not quite the same as a physical master who owns you, but uh, our employers are in a position over us. Uh, teachers are in a position over us in school as children and even as adults sometimes. Uh, so we are always subject to someone, are we not? Uh, certainly we are. And we're to treat them with respect regardless of what type person they are. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, God doesn't want us to suffer, but some suffering is necessary, as we'll see as we go on here. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? What if the accusation, the fault, is true? Well, <laughs> what glory is in that if it's true and you don't like it? Somebody tells you something you're doing or did that wasn't good. It isn't comfortable. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. You don't like it. But there's no glory in taking that patiently because you did it. But if when you do well and suffer for it, and you take that patiently, this is acceptable with God. <coughs> so if you did it, take it patiently. And if you didn't do it, take it patiently also. We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to try to straighten out our accusers. We just need to take whatever we are accused of patiently, whether it be right or whether it be wrong. And if we didn't do it, and we don't get all defensive and accusative back, then that's acceptable with God. That's the way He wants us to be. Meek, humble, and patient. Not rise up in pride and ego and become defensive. For even hereunto were you called. It says, you're called to have this kind of an attitude. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, he was treated worse than any human being has ever been treated on the earth, and yet he didn't defend himself, he didn't answer back, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, didn't utter a word. Read Isaiah 53. He set us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. He didn't get into a shouting match with those who were accusing him of all kinds of sin. He didn't answer back. When he suffered, he threatened not. You know, he could have called down holy angels. He could have called on the power of God against those who were smashing a crown of thorns on his head or cutting him, or beating him. There were angels all around. But he didn't threaten back. But committed himself to him that judges righteously. There's a huge lesson for us to learn there. Because it's only natural to try to defend yourself when you're accused. And boy, do we ever. It is our nature. I did not do that, <laughs> you know. Uh, we don't like being lied about. 
Well, Christ was lied about. And he didn't threaten back. He just let it go. Hard to do. And you and I have probably done it both ways at times. And shame on us when we did it the wrong way. We need to go back and read this and consider it very carefully and very deeply and be sure that we don't threaten back or accuse back or whatever, but just take it patiently and commit ourselves to Him that judges righteously. God's our judge. People who might criticize us are not our judge. So what difference does it make? The only difference it makes is to our ego and our pride, right? doesn't make any difference in our eternal judgment unless we answer wrongly because God is our judge and He is the one that can forgive sin. People can't forgive our sins in that sense. The blood of the Lamb is the only thing that can. So, we need to be very, very careful and commit ourselves to Him that judges rightly, not human beings who might accuse us. Who His own self bear our sins in his own body, on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live to righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So we were healed spiritually, we can be healed physically, through his stripes, through his death. For you were his sheep going astray. We were just wandering around everywhere, getting ourselves in trouble on this earth, until God began to call us, and teach us the truth, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So what difference does it make what men say about us or do to us or try to do to us? Take it patiently, accept it. We need to do that even right now as we see uh, people coming against us, and we just need to be patient, be humble, be meek, not accuse back. Just take it and let God be our judge. And then live so that we get judged properly. Uh, so that we live as Christ lived. And then we can be his bride, be the sons of the Father and so on. And live as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a purchased, redeemed people. That's the way we're to live. That's the way we're to be. Not in self-righteousness, but in godly righteousness, reacting in the same way that Christ did. And then we have hope in Him for a positive judgment at the end of our life. It doesn't matter what men thought about us. It's what God thinks of us. That's all that really matters. And that's a good place to quit for today.